Good evening. You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. I'm Claudio Mendoza, and it's time for KVMR's Evening News. After today's national headlines, we bring you KQED's California Report, followed by regional weather and news. Then, KVMR's Felton Pruitt talks with Helen Hutchinson, board member and past president for the League of Women Voters of California, about an upcoming presentation entitled Redistricting, What It Is and Why It Matters. We close our newscast tonight with a commentary about inflation by Mark Cunaberti. For their generous support of community radio, we thank SPD Markets, serving Nevada County for over 60 years. Locations on Zion Street in Nevada City and McKnight Way in Grass Valley. Offering conventional, organic, and local products, produce, and specialty foods. Information online, spdmarkets.com. Here are some of today's national news headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. House impeachment manager Democrat Jamie Raskin grew emotional as he concluded the first round of arguments in former President Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. He reflected on the damage done when a mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. An officer had a heart attack. An officer lost three fingers that day. Two officers have taken their own lives. Senators, this cannot be our future. Trump defense lawyer Bruce Castor, meanwhile, condemned the loss of life that day, but defended the rights of free political speech. I don't believe that the former president expects anybody to walk back any of the language. If that's how they feel about the way things transpired over the last couple of years in this country, they should be allowed to say that. And I will go to court and defend them if anything happens to them as a result. The Senate, meanwhile, voted the trial is constitutional. Testimony will continue this week. As the Senate begins an unprecedented trial of the former president, House committees are working to draft details of the current president's nearly $2 trillion stimulus proposal. As NPR Scott Detrow reports, President Biden is working to build more support for his administration's top legislative priority. Biden wants to include money for vaccine distribution, protective equipment, and direct payments to most Americans. He has, however, indicated he is open to scaling back the much-touted $1,400 direct payments for people who earn more than $75,000 a year. Next week, the president will make his first trip outside of Washington to push his legislative plan. He's traveling to Milwaukee, where he'll take part in a CNN town hall Tuesday. Biden and Democrats want the stimulus plan signed into law by early March, and have made it clear they're fine proceeding on a party-line basis if needed. Scott Detrow, NPR News, the White House. The Biden administration will soon begin directing allocating COVID-19 vaccines to federally funded community health centers. As NPR's Ping Wong reports, vaccines will be sent to some centers that serve vulnerable communities. COVID-19 vaccines are now given out at hospitals, mass vaccination sites, pharmacies. Next week, the government is launching a program to get vaccines to community health centers. Marcella Nunez-Smith, chair of Biden's COVID-19 Equity Task Force, says the new effort will help bring vaccines to populations that are hard to reach. So this includes people who are experiencing homelessness, you know, agricultural and migrant workers, residents of public housing, and those with limited English proficiency. The initial phase will push vaccines out to 250 community health centers that serve large populations of racial and ethnic minorities. 
Community health centers around the country serve around 30 million people. Ping Huang, NPR News. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was down nine points. The Nasdaq closed up 20 points. The S&P 500 fell four points. You're listening to NPR. Some 92 million TV viewers watched the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defeat the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl on CBS Sunday. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins reports the Nielsen ratings show it was the big game's lowest audience since 2006. This year's Super Bowl will still likely be the most watched TV program of the year, but Sunday's numbers were the smallest for the big game since about 90 million viewers tuned in to watch the Pittsburgh Steelers defeat the Seattle Seahawks in 2006, according to Nielsen. CBS says 96 million people watched the game, citing a figure that included viewing across online platforms controlled by the NFL, the Buccaneers, and the Chiefs, which Nielsen doesn't measure. Factors that could have led to the low numbers include decreased viewing by groups at parties or bars due to the pandemic and a blowout victory for the Buccaneers that may have encouraged fans to tune out early. Eric Deggins. NPR News. Safety regulators are now blaming the helicopter crash that claimed the life of basketball legend Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and six other passengers in January of last year on a poor decision by the pilot. Federal regulators say the helicopter's pilot should not have flown into clouds where he became disoriented and then plunged into a Southern California hillside. National Transportation Safety Board says foggy conditions north of Los Angeles on the day of the crash also likely contributed. The pilot of the chopper frequently flew the retired basketball star, but investigators say ignored his own training and violated federal regulations. Crude oil futures prices moved higher for a seventh straight session. Oil up 39 cents a barrel today, settled at 58.36 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. California has a long way to go to beat the coronavirus pandemic, but some positive trends are emerging. Governor Gavin Newsom says the state is averaging about 10,000 new coronavirus cases a day. That's down from 50,000 a day a month ago. And just about 5% of COVID tests are coming back positive. That, says Newsom, is an improvement from a 14% positivity rate in January. Everything that should be up is up. Everything that should be down is down as it relates to case counts, positivity rates, people being hospitalized, people in our ICUs. That is encouraging news indeed. Almost 4.7 million Californians have received a first dose of the vaccine, according to the governor. Newsom also acknowledges that's slower than the state would like, but says he's talking to the federal government about getting more supplies faster. Meanwhile, here in L.A., the superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District is floating a proposal to reopen elementary school campuses under some conditions. KPCC's Caroline Champlin has more. First of all, Superintendent Austin Buhner says the coronavirus case rate in L.A. County needs to drop below the state's threshold to legally reopen schools, which public health officials have predicted could happen this month. But that's not enough, Buhner said in his weekly address. To reopen campuses to 250,000 kids in the youngest grades, he says 25,000 elementary school teachers and staff would need to be vaccinated. You heard that right. Vaccinate 25,000 people and reopen elementary schools in the nation's second largest school district. Sounds simple to me. 
At this point, L.A. County teachers are not yet eligible for vaccines. Buettner's only criteria that has been met, he said, is district health protocols, like plastic partitions and new air filtration systems on campuses. For the California Report, I'm Caroline Champlin in Los Angeles. A Los Angeles City Councilman, Joe Buscaino, says he wants the city to sue the L.A. Unified to force it to reopen for in-person classroom instruction. Let's turn to Sacramento. Another day, another hearing about the failings of the state's Employment Development Department, the state agency responsible for sending out unemployment benefits. As we hear from the California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin, state lawmakers say they're so busy fielding constituent complaints about EDD, the legislators hardly have time for anything else. Central Valley State Senator Ana Caballero was among the lawmakers grilling unemployment officials yesterday. Also at the hearing, Silicon Valley Senator Dave Cortezzi, who wondered whether the state auditor's office needed to monitor EDD even more closely than it is already. The auditor issued two new reports in January alone. Is there any legal obstacle to, to having your shop uh, be embedded either short-term or long-term in a state agency like EDD. State Auditor Elaine Howell stressed maintaining independence would be crucial to her office's obligations. I would suggest that it would need to be in statute if the legislature wanted us to be embedded in EDD, essentially. Newly appointed EDD Director Rita Sines says the agency is working on major upgrades to increase the efficiency of its call centers and eliminate other barriers holding up legitimate payments. But these changes are still months out. Between May 2021 and October 2021, we will develop the tools and processes to collect first call resolution data. By June 2021, we will identify improvements in claims processing and in payments. In the meantime, EDD is in the process of notifying more than 180,000 people whose claims expired late last year that they won't be eligible for benefits again until March. For The California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Harvin. Support for The California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Paint Care, now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at PaintCare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. A new state commission is recommending that California end mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent crimes and allow judges to reconsider all criminal sentences after someone has spent 15 years in prison. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos has more. The commission, created by state law last year, is charged with examining California's criminal sentencing laws and recommending changes. Among their findings, that the state's legal system has racial inequality at its core, and that many laws are outdated, unsupported by data, and don't make the public more safe. Stanford Law School's Mike Romano is chair of the commission. We really tried to do a complete survey of punishments in California, from driving infractions, you know, all the way to life in prison. He says the commission learned that California is spending $83,000 a year to lock up each prisoner, and that crime has stayed at historically low levels in recent years, even as the state has relaxed some criminal penalties. California, Romano says, has an unbelievably bloated criminal legal system, and that there are a tremendous number of people who are serving 
punishments that are uh, unnecessary in terms of enhancing public safety. In fact, quite the opposite. The group is made up of legal experts and two state lawmakers. There are 10 recommendations in its inaugural report, all of them focused on changes that could be made by the legislature without going to voters. Those recommendations include reducing fines and fees and eliminating jail time for some traffic offenses, making low-value thefts that don't involve weapons or serious injury misdemeanors, and giving judges more power to dismiss sentencing enhancements, which can add years onto prison terms. They'll present the findings to the governor and lawmakers for consideration. For the California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos. And finally this morning, California is set to develop new rules aimed at making homes more resilient against wildfires. My California Report co-host Lily Jamali has more on this. State Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara said his office is partnering with a group of state agencies to come up with home hardening standards statewide. The goal is to reduce wildfire risk, but also to try and make insurance more affordable as policy prices balloon and as more insurers drop coverage altogether in high fire risk areas. Commissioner Lara likened rewarding homeowners who install fire-resistant building materials and landscaping to lowering car insurance rates for good drivers. But the largest insurance trade group in the country says quantifying the impact of hardening a home against fire is still a work in progress. That's the California Report's Lily Jamali. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, February 9th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. And now for regional weather. For the Nevada City Grass Valley area, tonight, mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming clear with a low around 39. Tomorrow should be a beautiful day with a high near 63 degrees. For the Truckee Tahoe region, tonight mostly cloudy with a low around 24, and tomorrow mostly sunny with a high near 46. The National Weather Service is reporting that two systems are likely to impact the region through the weekend. The first storm, Thursday into Friday, looks to bring gusty west to southwest winds and chances for Sierra snow and western Nevada Valley rain. The second, Saturday into Sunday, is likely to bring another round of gusty winds and wintry conditions with better chances for snow at all elevations. Travel disruptions for the Sierra Passes are likely for both of these systems. In Sacramento, tonight, patchy fog after 4 a.m., otherwise mostly cloudy with a low around 43. Patchy fog continues tomorrow until 10 a.m., otherwise partly sunny, then gradually becoming sunny, with a high near 68. In local news, the union reports that the woman fatally shot by a Nevada County Sheriff's deputy during a confrontation Thursday afternoon accused law enforcement of trying to take her children. The woman, identified as Ariella Sage Eloise Crawford, aged 33, was reported to have been acting erratically while armed with a knife. Crawford, whose birth name was Deirdre Eloise Hawkins, appeared to have had ties to both California and Oregon and had been in the area for at least a few months, according to Nevada County Assistant District Attorney Chris Walsh. During the incident, one deputy tried to deploy a taser at some point and the other fired his service weapon, Walsh said. On Friday, Nevada County Sheriff Shannon Moon released the identity of the two deputies involved as Deputy Caleb Todarian with four and a half years of service, and Deputy Matthew Harrison, 
with four years of service to Nevada County. Both deputies have been placed on paid administrative leave, Moon said in a video released on the department's Facebook page. Finally, an appeal to our community. Tula, a spayed female around four years old, went missing from Greenhorn Road near Glen Pines. She weighs 34 pounds, is brown and black with a white upside-down heart on her chest, and has pointy ears. If you find Tula, please call her human at 530-537-4239. Coming up next, Felton Pruitt's interview with Helen Hutchinson, board member and past president of the League of Women Voters of California. We're talking with Helen Hutchinson. She's a board member for the League of Women Voters of California, and they have a Zoom presentation coming up on February 13th called Redistricting, What It Is and Why It Matters. And I guess, Helen, you probably have the answers to a lot of those questions. Well, I have some answers to some of the questions, sure. Well, let's start with redistricting. What is it? So every 10 years, we do a census nationally. We count how many people we have and where we live. And then we use that data, any government that is elected in districts, so that would include Congress, members of the state legislature, and then um, members of the Board of Supervisors at the county level, and any other local governments that are elected by district, need to redraw their district lines so that the new districts have an equal number of people in them. We do this because we tend to be a pretty mobile society. We don't stay in the same places, and um, we want to make sure that each representative represents the same number of people in any particular elected body. And is this done every 10 years because we do the census every 10 years? Exactly. We do the census, and then the following the census, then we draw new district lines. Have we gotten complete results of the 2020 census yet? Do you know? No, we do not have the results yet, and they are um, the last news we got was that that would be delayed, and it would probably be sometime in the late spring or into the summer before we get the data that we use to do the redistricting. So everything's kind of because of COVID, just push back, yes. push back, push back. Yes, yeah, which it, it means that we'll be doing a lot of the, the redistricting will all be happening in the late summer and into the fall this year. Give us a little hint of how the process goes. I mean, does, do a bunch of people meet, they look at the census, then they go, oh, we should tweak things this way or that way, or how does it work? So at the state level, we have an independent commission that is 14 Californians who are already meeting, and they are responsible for drawing the lines for our congressional districts, and our state legislative districts, and then also for the Board of Equalization. And that we don't need to worry about as much. It's not doesn't get as much prominence. But the other two really are, are pretty big deals. So they'll draw congressional districts, and they'll draw the state assembly and the state senate districts for the whole state. And then at the county level, for the most part in California, the Board of Supervisors will draw their own lines. So the elected officials will be drawing their own lines. However, there are some new rules about how they have to do that. Not only do they have to have equal population, which is a given when you're redistricting, but then 
they need to hold public hearings. There are going to be some required public hearings. And they need to then, the criteria by which they draw the maps needs to, as much as it can, respect existing communities. And those communities can be defined in a whole variety of different ways. They're defined by the communities themselves. Nevada City and Grass Valley are in District 1 which is affectionately referred to, I think, by the right side of the political stream as the blue pimple of Nevada County. Now, was this all done because of a a redistricting thing 10 years ago? No. The new reforms are being done by groups like the League of Women Voters and Common Cause and a variety of other voting rights and good government groups. We want to make sure that any redistricting that's done is both fair so that it balances the the population, and it's transparent, that the public has input into it, and that there is no one party or another party who has undue sway in the process of drawing those lines. The groups that worked on these reforms are all very nonpartisan and, and are more concerned with ensuring public input and community representation both in the process as it happens and then in the, in the resulting districts. It sounds like a beautiful plan. It also sounds like something that can get tinkered with by folks on one side or the other. I mean, of course they're going to try and tinker with it, wouldn't you say? The traditional way to draw lines was that the elected officials drew their own lines. And, of course, if they're drawing their own lines, they're going to try to draw them so that they can get reelected. That's just human nature. Um, and... Our attempt is to make sure that the process has uh, a good public input so that the public gets to go and say, look, at this is my neighborhood. I define it by this street and this landmark or this river, this lake, whatever it is, and this is how I would draw it. And please keep us together when you draw that district. Don't divide us into separate districts because we have common interests. We want to be able to have a single voice in this body. In the past, when elected officials were drawing their own lines, sure, they were, they were drawing them for to, their own benefit. To, to, for their own benefit. I mean, and yeah, definitely. Our goal by saying not only do you have to have public input to the process, you also need to follow these ranked criteria when you're drawing the lines. We hope that the public voice in those new districts will be stronger. Well, let's talk about your presentation now. It's a Zoom presentation happening Saturday, February 13th from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. And as I said, it's called Redistricting, uh, what it is and why it matters. Uh, Tell us about the presentation. So the presentation will start at the beginning, you know, starting with what are districts. So start from the beginning, what is redistricting, why do we do it, and then what are the rules and the rules vary depending upon whether it's the state redistricting or the local redistricting. And then there's also, why is it important to have our public voices heard in this process? And then how do you do that? How do you make your voice heard? How do you help organize people in your neighborhood or your community or whatever it is to make sure that your voices are heard at all the various levels of redistricting? How can our listeners get an invite to this Zoom? They need to contact the League of Women Voters of Western Nevada County. And we're talking with Helen Hutchinson from the League of Women Voters of California. 
Talk about gerrymandering for a second and just kind of explain that to folks. So gerrymandering is the process of drawing districts that are for the benefit of the elected officials or the benefit of one party over another party instead of keeping communities whole so that they can elect representatives that they choose. It is, in essence, saying that the elected officials are choosing their voters rather than voters are choosing their elected officials. I'm going to add that you can't always tell that a district is gerrymandered or fair by what it looks like because you don't know how communities actually have grown over time. You need to look and see what the criteria were and what communities have been kept together and which ones have been split. Is there anything else you want folks to know about your uh, Zoom presentation? No, I just invite everybody to join us. I think it will be interesting, and I look forward to it. We've been talking with Helen Hutchinson from the California League of Women Voters. The Zoom presentation, Redistricting, What It Is and Why It Matters, uh, happens on Saturday, February 13th, 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. We thank you for putting this information out, Helen. Sure. Thank you for helping get the information out to the community. That was Helen Hutchinson, board member and past president of the League of Women Voters of California. You can find links to both the League's website and to the presentation on our webpage in today's show notes. We close our newscast today with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Is there inflation in our future? Depending on what kind of inflation and to what degree makes answering this question a bit more involved than just a yes or no response. Inflation to most people means the increase in prices of the things we buy. Why it happens and to what degree it occurs requires we take a little trip through our economic school book. One might describe inflation as either the fear your dollar will lose value, think Mexican peso, or that something will rise in price, making it more expensive later, think home prices in the mid-2000s. I could add a third definition by saying in contrast to thinking something could cost you more later. One could also describe it as the hopes that something will be worth more later, think Bitcoin, hence turn the owner a profit. No matter what view applies to your perception of inflation, the concept centers around the same event, a change in price. Although the definition of inflation has changed over the decades, today's definition refers to rising prices as inflation and a general fall in prices as deflation. Inflation can have many causes, and without getting too deep into the woods, just know the most common type of inflation is monetary inflation. Think money or monetary. This type of inflation can be the most insidious and dangerous type, but is also a type of inflation that can usually be prevented if there is a will to do so. Simply put, print a lot of paper dollars in a relatively fast amount of time and put those dollars into circulation and you will likely get monetary inflation. All three conditions must be present to see monetary inflation. Printing a lot of dollars means just that, creating dollars without regard to restraint. The time frame that this printing is accomplished is also a contributing factor. Print copious amounts of currency over centuries and inflation won't likely be an issue. Print a lot of dollars quickly, and the second part of the monetary inflation equation is complete. The third part of the equation is the circulation of the newly created dollars. 
burying newly created dollars in the ground so no one can use it will cause no inflation. The money has to circulate and be used by people in the economy to cause this type of inflation. Eliminate or avoid any of these three conditions, quantity, time frame, or the circulation of the currency, and monetary inflation will not occur. Do all three, and monetary inflation will eventually occur. Most people can conceptualize monetary inflation when the word Mexican peso is mentioned, and rightly so. Although many will not be able to put their finger exactly on the exact mechanism of a peso event, most will grab the general economic principle at work here. The Mexican government printed too many pesos. They did it over a relatively short amount of time, and then the pesos were distributed and used in the economy by the Mexican people. Fast forward to the United States in a 2008 bailout period. Most analysts expected inflation due to the trillions of dollars created that were used in the bailouts. We did see some inflation in certain asset areas, but for the most part, prices remained stable and actually fell in other asset areas. What was missing in the three-part monetary equation was the circulation variable. In 2008, most of the trillions went into the banking system and not to the average everyday consumer. The banking sector dumped questionable loans, think mortgages, onto the backs of the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank in exchange for cash. That cash then paid off some of their bad debt and made them solvent and the banks able to function. But a good portion of the money was given right back to the Fed in exchange for interest payments. So to be clear, the Fed gave the money to the banks, then the banks gave much of that money right back to the Fed and got paid to do so. Hence, much of the money never made it into the hands of the consumer and subsequently never made it into circulation. No circulation, no monetary inflation. Concluding, this time around, the government COVID-19 bailouts have about half of the money going to consumers and businesses. Although trillions will continue to flow into the financial sectors, likely causing inflation in stock prices, unlike 2008, much of this new money this time will go into public circulation. That said, it is in this analyst's opinion, inflation is on its way. That does it for today's Money Matters. Remember, this newscast is not meant as investment advice, and the opinions expressed here are mine alone and do not reflect those of this station as staff, management, or underwriters. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and am a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. That wraps it up for tonight. If you'd like to hear our newscast again, you can do so on our webpage, kvmr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in tomorrow for a conversation with Gretchen Bond, president of Nevada City's Chamber of Commerce, followed by Keith Porter's interview with Nevada County Public Health Officer Dr. Scott Kellerman on The Sages Among Us. Have a good evening.